Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 96. Um, thanks to our sponsors, Tea Leaf Tea, Le Petit Chocolat, and Yeasty Boys. Uh, it's a bit, bit different. You, if you're listening to this as I'm posting it, then we're right. We've just had Christmas, so I hope you had a wonderful Christmas, and we are about to have uh, New Year's. So all the best for the end of 2017 and into 2018. My my guest today is me. Um, I am running an, an old podcast where I was the guest. Um, basically, it's just a bit of filler content, but maybe you'll get to find out a bit more about me in this. And uh, if you want to, God, if you don't, stop listening now. Um, it's, it's a conversation I had about two and a bit years ago. I uh, was recorded for uh, uh, Rip It Up Radio, which which no longer exists. So the guy who was doing that, the guy who was compiling those interviews and editing the magazines, a dude called Andrew Johnston, and he contacted me a few months ago and said, oh, um, do you want the audio from that? Would you like to have it? You might like to run it on your podcast one day. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'll have a bit of a listen to it and maybe that'll work during the Christmas holidays. So that's why you're about to hear it now. Maybe maybe you heard it previously. Uh, maybe you don't want to hear it. That's fine. But it's a conversation I had where um, I had to choose a handful of songs that meant something to me and um, we basically talked about my life and and how I got into what I do and I guess a version of what I've been doing talking to, to people but um, based around these songs. So you'll hear little snippets of the music um, but you'll essentially hear me talking about my upbringing and uh, how I got into listening to music and then reviewing it and reviewing other things and some of my thoughts on a, on a few things. As I say, this was recorded, I'm, I think... You'll probably be able to spot a couple of the references, but I think it was recorded in 2015. Um, so yeah, it's it's mostly a general chat. But if there's obviously, uh, you know, if I'm if I'm plugging an upcoming show or an album that I really like, it's something from a few years ago. But um, I took some of those things out and um, and tried to make this as sort of current as it can be. And um, back back next week with a real episode but um this is me talking with andrew johnston from rip it up radio and um yeah i hope you enjoy it and again thanks for thanks for listening and and enjoy your holidays simon sweetman welcome to rip it up radio hi thanks for uh thanks for having me oh it's a great pleasure um i i i'm I'm something of a fan um though there's you have an awful lot of detractors out there you're a very Uh, you're a very controversial figure well, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I um, try to be or that I particularly like or understand the term controversial, but uh, and with regard to what I do, but um, I think yeah, it's something you just kind of have to accept, and and there are certainly um, you know with, I'm I'm pretty um, open and I guess prolific on social media, so you can't really escape people telling you. Um, what they think of you, and I'm I'm fine with that. Well, I have to admire that because uh, not, it it can be quite disturbing, especially when people have got access to grind and they attack you relentlessly. Relentlessly, uh, I, I know the first couple of times it happened to me, I found it very disturbing. H- how do you cope? Well, I think simply you can't um, you can't probably say some of the things I've said about people and their careers and their I guess their art. Uh, whatever they're trying to do, you can't say that and then expect people to not um, be upset about it. Um, it's not the artist and quite often the fan on the artist's behalf. Um, it's a small country and so you get people, um, you know, friends and family, you know, it isn't just about the fact that the person is, is a fan, 
they are actually going into bat for someone that they share a flat with or share their life with or um, have grown up with, and they perhaps are defending them as a person just as much as they're defending their right to to make art. But I, I do think people forget that, um, you know, the whole point of putting something out there in the public space is for it to be commented on, um, which is why I say I can't be precious about um, being picked on for the things I say. Um, it used to be that you, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I sort of come from um, the, the pre-social media time where I actually wrote um, articles for magazines and newspapers. Um, so it used to be that you did that and then a person wrote, a, maybe they wrote an angry letter in and that was sort of where the conversation stopped. I kind of figured I've had my say in the review and they're allowed to have their say in the letter um, and it's futile to carry it on. It gets a little bit murky now because, um, you know, I have my say, I post it to my page, someone has a whinge about it, um, I might fire back a smart-ass remark and I might be doing that in, kind of in jest but then, you know, we worry about how tone is perceived and so forth and so things can kind of escalate and online there is a bit of a culture of outrage that's kind of, I guess, been created and stirred. Yeah, uh, to answer your question, you, I guess you just have to be thick-skinned and, and it's something that's probably, I kind of think I haven't really ever thought about, I've just done it, but I guess it's been, you know, I've been writing about people's music in there. Um, films and books and stuff for for quite a few years now, so I guess I've just got used to it that there's going to be some angry, you know, you can't please people all of the time, and I'm not writing for everyone, I'm I'm primarily writing for myself. Simon, how did did you become a film, music, and book critic? Um, Yeah, I guess I just, something I always wanted to do really I always laugh about that line you know one of the one of the kind of things that people console themselves with is the idea that no one grew up uh, wanting to be a critic but uh, I would dispute that I uh, from from a really young age I was I guess kind of obsessed with music and part of that became reading about music um, again pre-internet so I was reading music magazines music biographies um, whatever you could find, if there was a tiny column in the paper, um, you know, you read that. But if that led you to the library to go and find a biography about someone or to, to you know, a magazine or whatever, and then conversations with people in record stores. So part of that became being interested in how music was written about and the people that were writing about music, what they were doing, how they were doing it, and um, all those kind of classic 70s music writers uh Lester Bangs and, you know, uh, Nick Cohn and uh, Nick Toshis and um, loads of Nick Kent, all the Nicks, Nick Kent, um, lo- loads of those people really uh, appealed to me, Syl- Sylvie Simmons, um, so many. And I-, I liked what they wrote, I liked the way that they wrote it, and I liked that the the dialogue that was happening or, or the music criticism it was kind of um, a piece of art in, a, in and of itself. Good, good writing should be engaging and interesting, and and you know perhaps humorous, entertaining. So I kind of grew up reading all of that stuff and uh, wanting to, I guess, have a career in journalism, and thinking that part of the career in journalism would be writing about music. And um, so I, that's that's kind of what I did. I started um, doing you know, applying for journalism school and doing the, the thing that you do, um, filing stories about all sorts of things, getting getting um, unpaid positions, filing copies for community magazines and newspapers, um, 
uh, student magazines, I would do some reviews of albums and plays and movies and whatever I could get my hands on. And then I kind of just narrowed my focus and limited my career options by deciding that, you know, I didn't actually want to be a journalist. I didn't want to write a story about a cat being stuck up a tree or go out with the photographer and meet the person that had lived to 100. I, I didn't want to do that, not because there's anything wrong with that. It just did not interest me, and I wanted to... I was kind of stubborn and idealistic, and, and I wanted to be a person who wrote about music for a living, and I was going to find a way to do it. And um, uh, I guess that's sort of what I did. I, I kept approaching people, um, and my own way suffered... Um, as much or maybe more rejection as people always tell you they did in their in their success stories when they're a musician and they say that no one would sign them the first time around or that no one came to their first gig. You know, I've had um, a lot of unanswered emails and a lot of no's and a lot of um, job offers that were then pulled back and a lot of chances to write to people that were then stopped and all of those things as any as any freelance or budding um, writer will have and all of that rejection is healthy and important and it hurts like hell at the time and it fires you on and makes you want to do it and uh, yeah so I just kind of kept 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 pushing myself to do that stuff and, and kept kind of uh, trying to find a way to, to make it happen. I also um, you know, I kind of practiced. I sat and, again, you know, I was doing it before there was any sort of blogging um, forum. So I, I kind of wrote uh, record reviews as practice. So I would sit at home and um, and just go through, review my record collection, just go through things that I owned and try and write 300 words about a favorite record. And, and then, you know, none of these things were published. They were just handwritten and uh, I've sort of, I think I've lost most of them over the years. I used to have folders full of them. Um, and yeah, then I kind of started approaching newspapers and and seeing and magazines and seeing what could happen. And uh, from there, I started getting a few jobs. Let's have a listen to your first song selection. So today, I think we've got eight songs. Uh, first of all, before we listen to Steely Dan's Kid Charlemagne, why have you selected the songs you've selected for today? I think um, most of them probably I've selected as a. Um, an example of an artist or an album that I like and that I probably could have chosen almost any other song by that artist or almost any other song off the album that that, you know, that, that particular tracks come from. Um, I probably, probably these ones get the, get the, um, nudge, you know, slightly nose out in front of some of the other songs. And in, in the case of Charlemagne is one of my all time favorite Steely Dan songs. It is one of um, my favorites off that album. Um, but I, you know, damn near could have picked any song by these guys. I love, um, I love what they do. I love the fact that they kind of soldier on or soldiered on, regardless of sort of trends or fashions. They were putting out pretty interesting music right at the sort of height of the punk era, and it was probably, you know, I don't have that baggage that some people have. I, I wasn't around then listening to music. I didn't really, you know, need to be. Uh, listening to what the cool people were listening to. So I just kind of heard Steely Dan as music on the radio as a kid, and there was something about it that was interesting to me, and they're a band that I've kind of just always uh, found time to, to appreciate. Musically, I think there's something um, uh, incredible about how meticulous they, they are, the fact that you know, no no two cuts on one album feature the same band. They basically are auditioning a different band all the time um, to get the absolute right sound. They're kind of chasing a sound that's in their head. And 
Um, what you hear with Kid Charlemagne is, uh, like with the best of the Steely Dan songs, is these incredibly subversive lyrics, um, these nasty little stories about evil people, um, twisted characters, um, dark situations, a kind of um, the kind of crime, sort of noirish kind of um, stories, and yet they're carried on this, you know, what people kind of write off as this sort of soft jazz, um, you know, dinner jazz, light um, FM radio kind of 70s stuff. And, and, and uh, so there's something to me that's kind of smirking and wonderful about how they pull it off. This is Steely Dan, Kid Charlemagne. Simon, that brings back so many memories for me. I was at boarding school at Sacred Heart College in Auckland. Oh, just a, just a couple of years after the split ends and the DD smashes and the day that were the, the dudes all left. Yeah. And yeah, it was a very musical school. And my bunkmate, and not in the same bunk, but in the bunk below me, was a, was a was a guy from Rotorua called Vaughan Walker who had a cassette radio player, which was like gold in those days. Yeah. Days of yeah. import restrictions, and he played two things. Steely Dan, Relentlessly, and Boz Skag, Silk Degrees, over yeah. and over and over. And I'd come from the middle of nowhere. My parents didn't listen to music, and there was only one very faint, crappy radio station. And I had not been exposed to much music before in my life, and I didn't like what I was hearing. I found Steely Dan, well, I'll use your word, subversive. It just disturbed yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, but I found by the end of the first year at boarding school, I couldn't live without the music. I that it just Vaughan had uh well Vaughan had, had, had reprogrammed my brain and I'm very, ever so grateful to him. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's wonderful stuff. And I kind of, um, you know, I, take, I guess I take music pretty seriously, but, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, Steely Dan liked, um, I guess, Frank Zappa and there, there are a few other examples. It's the sort of music I totally understand why a person would not bother, would not want to um, to get caught up in it and, and can't on a cursory listen understand what is so intoxicating about it. Um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, I don't sort of go into bat for these guys so hard that you're an, you know, as to say you're an idiot if you don't have the time to listen to them. But um, I do feel that it's it, it is kind of down the down the kind of wormhole music. You kind of get sucked down into it and and find a lot happening if if you want to spend that time. We were um, have you know we were having this discussion in the office last night, late last night, about our favourite songs, and all of us were in agreement that the the songs that we liked the most were the songs that we really didn't care for on the first listen. By the time we got to the fifth or sixth listen, we were absolutely hooked. And that's Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think that's um that, that that's generally the case with um generally the case for me with album reviewing, definitely. It's almost too easy if something cements itself straight away. Although, you know, now now I'm writing for an online kind of audience. You, you need to be a bit uh, quicker, and, and 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 I try to get through a lot of stuff. Sometimes you don't quite have that luxury, but but certainly, my, you know, favourite albums for me are ones that didn't quite click straight away. Do you do you ever get exhausted with the volume of music that you listen to? Does it? Do you oh, ever... all the time. <laughs> you know, but I'm a I'm a, a stay at home father of a toddler, so exhaustion is sort of something that you're supposed to, uh, you know, have and live with. So I kind of, you know, people said when I when we first had um, our son, and then when I moved to staying at home more often with him, like I was always sort of there part time, but now I'm at home. People sort of said, "Oh, you'll be exhausted," and I, I think I kind of um, always like to think, well. The exhaustion is primarily my own fault, you know. Like when when I'd see people at gigs and they would say, "You look tired," or or I would just stare vaguely at someone and then I would have to say to them, "Oh, sorry, I'm a bit tired. I'm a bit tired." And then they would say, "Oh, right, yeah, is it your boy keeping you up?" I would say, I would have to say, "No, he's a dream. He goes to sleep. You know, he never wakes up until it's time to wake up. It's it's me that's the idiot. I'm up until sort of two in the morning and then I'm." up again at, at five or six in the morning. That's my own fault. So, yeah, I, I do get exhausted, but uh, with the hours that I keep and I do get exhausted with, yeah, listening to music, there are times more and more, uh, more recently, where I do kind of try to find some some kind of silence. For a long time, I was so used to listening to the act of listening to something that I couldn't really kind of bear to be without something playing at home, which is which is quite strange to, a, to probably just about anyone else. And so I started listening to things like comedy records and also classical records, things that were, I guess, you know, not not popular music and not things that I was going to be writing about or reviewing. So the temptation was never there to to write about them. Um, and yet I still was sort of so used to that mechanical thing of putting on an album that um, I was kind of locked into that. But but now I'll quite happily uh, have, you know, moments in the day, hours on end where I'm not actually listening to something. Our next track is by The Temptations, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. Yeah, this, is a, this, this would be one example from that list I gave you where 
I mean, I, I love the Temptations and and a lot of the the Motown stuff are, and the the songs of that era. And I could have I could have of course picked other things, but to me, this this is about this song more than it's about um, representing that you know that band or a particular songwriter or artist. It is about this song. Um, that doesn't mean I I really care all that much for cover versions of the song. It's this recording that I that I dig. Um, and I guess for me, it probably goes back to, you know, being a kid and seeing um, uh, The Big Chill and learning so much, you know, loving that soundtrack to this day, mm. loving that soundtrack so much. But uh, re-watching The Big Chill, which which is sort of uh, uh, something that's done in my house every two or three years, um, re-watching The Big Chill now, I can completely and utterly identify with the um, obnoxious uh, white person dancing that goes on when this song comes on because um, it's it's about all I'd be capable of too. But there's something kind of majestic about how these people uh, don't care that they inherently have no groove. They're just enjoying a song that ties them to a to a to a place, um, ties them together, um, means something to them to their friendship. And I kind of hear all of those things in that song now. But it's a killer um, opening. A killer opening to the song, the intro, the the drum fill, the way the groove kind of presents itself, that that um, fantastic opening line, n- not just the lyric but the delivery of it. It's it's a song that um, I I kind of can't ever get sick of. It's one that um, I, I do a, I do the odd kind of DJ set around town playing records in pubs, and um, although I, I freak out at the notion of calling it a DJ set as such. What I'm what I'm really there to do is just play records and switch between them. But this is a song that probably more often than you know, more than any other song, this is one that I almost always play. The Temptations ain't too proud to beg. I know you wanna leave me, but I refuse to let you go. If I have to beg, plead for your sympathy, I don't mind, cause you mean that much to me. Ain't too proud to beg, and you know it, please don't leave me, girl. Simon, your first album, what was the first album you ever consciously went out and bought? Um, I think the first two things that I bought um, together, like together on the same day that I can remember buying, um, I was a tape buyer. Like I listened to records, my parents had records, but I was a tape buyer. And I remember being about nine, maybe about 10 years old, and for my birthday, getting a music voucher and going and buying um, U2's The Joshua Tree and Midnight Oil's Diesel and Dust. And I always kind of think, you know, that's not too bad taste-wise. Not, hmm. not that it matters at all, but that's not too bad. And, and that I'm no I'm no great U2 fan anymore, but um, I was up until that point. And I think I probably could just about listen to The Joshua Tree again. Um, but certainly that's about where I stopped with that band. Uh, Midnight Oil, um, I always, I always liked. I still do, and 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 there are albums of theirs that I prefer over 
Diesel and Dust, but I still think it's a pretty good record. So um, there are albums that are still in my collection. Um, I, I don't have the tapes anymore, but I did own them on CD, and I've gone back, and now I have copies of them on vinyl. So, yeah, they were they were kind of um, really important to me, those, record, those tapes, in terms of um, the start of a collection, owning them, going home with them, and wanting to instantly kind of add to them and build something up as a collection. And, and of course, there were things that followed that were... Um, don't get the free pass that I'm giving those to. Like one of the things that I bought almost immediately after that was um, Rick Astley, um, which which is probably only okay now in an ironic post Rick Rolled world. But um, it's something I never really thought about for for many years. But that was, I guess, it was just the equivalent of going and buying the catchy pop single of the day. Um, so yeah, plenty plenty of mistakes, plenty of things that you could. Um, hold your head in your hands and cringe about but that's that's all part of building a collection and, and learning about music I do like Rick Astley's well his only big hit wasn't it never going to give you up yeah it's uh I I'm a great defender of of pop music as an art the, the art of putting something into two and a half minutes putting a lot of emotion uh, tight arrangement great instrumentation I'm a big admirer of that and a big defender of, of what a lot of people would dismiss as, as, as popcorn music. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I'm the same. I don't know that I could quite um, share your enthusiasm towards Rick Astley being any great <laughs> um, champion of that craft. Um, he, he, he seemed to me to be a guy who just uh, fronted up and everything was done for him. And um, but 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 I will agree in the sense that, you know, as I say, in this, in this sort of ironic age, I, I've played... I, I do own the Rick Astley record on vinyl now, picked it up for a dollar, and I have have played Never Gonna Give You Up um, out in bars more than once. And people hit the dance floor for it now, like possibly because they're having a laugh or whatever. But, but that's great. I'm, I'm certainly a big defender of uh, music in the moment, um, capturing a, a moment, whether sincerely or ironically, and having a bit of fun with it is, is cool. And uh, I think the thing that you're talking about uh, I completely agree with, but I think of, um, you know, say, um, those early Madonna songs uh, are good examples to me of um, stuff that was both probably unfairly written off by a lot of people as vacuous pop music when when actually it was pretty fantastic. Well, before we move on to your next track, which is which I'm, I'm intrigued to hear what you've got to say about this, the Jeff Beck group, I've Been Drinking, just give us just give us some thoughts and feelings about Madonna, please. Uh, well, I, I'm really only, gosh, I've just listened to the new album and it's pretty disastrous. She should uh, certainly give up, I think, now. But but I, I'm, in, I'm in two minds about Madonna. I think, you know, there, there's a fan, there is a really fantastic Greatest Hits album there and it's not necessarily any of the ones we've been given. It probably, it isn't probably qu- quite the double album that you sometimes get sort of handed to you. Uh, maybe that original one, The Immaculate Collection, is, is probably all we need. Um, the first couple of records are fantastic, and um, and I still go back to those and play those. And you know there have absolutely been selected um, moments um, since. You know I think the last Madonna stuff that I really cared about, or probably the probably the single from a few years ago, "Hung Up," is is the last really good pop single that she released. But Album-wise, you'd have you'd have to go back to the sort of late '90s, early 2000s. There hasn't really been anything in the last decade and a half that she's needed to do. Um, 
I I think there's a handful or a double handful of amazing songs that she's uh, co-created, had some part in. I just don't quite believe the um, the sort of I guess the hype, the kind of um, I don't quite believe um, the reverence we give to her as some icon that that picks trends and and create you know reinvents herself and and the comparison that I've always found baffling is people talking about her as if she's uh, similar to David Bowie. I mean, what David Bowie, whether you like him or not, and and why you wouldn't, why why you would have some strange blanket ruling that you did not like David Bowie is, is kind of beyond me. But whatever you think of David Bowie's career, he has some great songwriting chops, and I don't believe Madonna has anything like that. And I think maybe for a lot of people that doesn't matter, but to me. Um, songwriting is is a pretty important part of um, understanding and appreciating music. I, I kind of, you know, I kind of want to know that the person's put the hours in trying to create something, not just turned up to the vocal booth and uh, and and nailed it and on the third or fourth take. So I, I, I like Madonna. I like a lot of her stuff, but I don't think she's quite, you know. And a lot of this kind of reinventing yourself, it's it's not trend setting. It's complete trend following by her, which. We're seeing with the with the new album, she's just hopelessly out of step and way behind, and it's a record that that sounds like it should have been released, if anything, ten years ago. It sounds sounds like it's trying to compete with when Gwen Stefani first um, put solo records out. So, yeah, I think I think some of her stuff is fantastic, and I think anyone that thinks Madonna's awful is missing missing the point. But I don't know that she's given the world anything great in terms of. Um, songwriting or, or artistry in that sense. She's she's an actress. Jeff Beck is a is an interesting interesting case. He's every every bit as good as Clapton. He's a, an astonishing guitarist, but he just hasn't had that big career, has he? Well, you know, he's he's not only every bit as good as Clapton, he's 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 far superior in many ways. Uh technically he's uh, an amazing guitarist and he's and he's one of the very few from his from from that lineage from and from from his era that has kind of cracked on and and has done that thing of continuing to reinvent himself and 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 within and and in guitar circles anyway um he has kept relevant and interesting and um uh, applied that that sort of natural talent and those early ten thousand hours uh, or whatever of practice he's applied that to continuing continuing to sort of evolve and learn and redefine the role of the guitar. All of that is very boring to anyone who doesn't like Jeff Beck or hasn't bothered listening to him or, or is kind of scared of guitar music. So I'm a huge fan of of all of his stuff, uh, all of the playing that he's done across the years. Uh, you did write about him not quite having this this sort of career that someone like Clapton's had or or Jimmy Page who really only turned up for the first decade of his career and has, has sort of wandered blissfully ignorant for thirty years and, and <laughs> continues you know, continues to be raved about and, and you know, and I say that as a card carrying Led Zeppelin fan, but it, it's the truth. But um, Beck is an int- Beck just, is an interesting case. I just want to say ouch. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't think Jimmy Page would have felt it. I don't think that guy's felt a thing in years. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think Beck, certainly a fascinating case because he was given a lot of opportunities and, and then missed out on so many as well. You know, there's the stories that he could have been in Pink Floyd. He 
could have been in the Rolling Stones. Um, you know, he sort of missed out on these things, but at the same time, you can't really quite imagine him ever working in those roles. So what he what he ended up doing and has done for like you know the lion's share of his career now is worked out a way to to be the lead guitarist as soloist. So what he's trying to do is um, he is a guitar he is a guitar player as a voice. He's using the instrument as his voice. He's not just um, mm. you know playing the guitar. He's he's kind of replaced the idea of the lead singer. Yet he'll still. I also think with Beck, he's a fantastic accompanist. He's very good in that role as a lead guitarist. So I picked this track because uh, the Jeff Beck group is, is, is kind of some of the early stuff in his career, and it's um, it's him working with Rod Stewart. And Rod Stewart's another guy who perhaps squandered opportunity, sort of, you know, and 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 phoned it in a bit in the later half of his career. But man, you hear that guy sing when he was when he was shit hot, and he really was shit hot for a long, long time. And uh, He's an amazing singer. So, so this track is I've been drinking. I think is a is a wonderful example of Jeff Beck in that lead guitarist role as accompanist for a singer, and um, it's it's an amazing vocal performance by by Roger. It's it's an amazing performance by the whole band, um, and you know some great players in the past through the Jeff Beck groups. Um, a few different lineups. Um, yeah, I, I, I probably haven't got enough. Uh, nice things to say. You know, I could keep going talking about Jeff Beck, but I, I, I'm aware that um, people switched off ages ago. He's not he's not really an exciting subject, but this song is pretty killer. Jeff Beck Group, I've Been Drinking. I'm drinking again Thinking of when You left me And that was so once so long ago Wonder, I wish. Now, Steve, that's our next, your next song choice, Simon. Yeah. Just lately, just of late, because I've always admired Stevie Wonder. We, we seem to have this career arc. You, artists finally hit the big time. Stevie Wonder's big time lasted longer than most. For, for, for yeah. most big stars, it's about 10 years. And then yeah. there's that fading off period. And that usually lasts for 20 years. And then they're rediscovered by a new generation. 
uh, or, yeah. or, or a previous generation are hungry to revisit their past. Now, Stevie Wonder had a long, long career, and then he just kind of faded out for a while. But he yeah. seems to be back with a vengeance. All of a sudden, he's being written about. His music's being played again. People are talking about him. Mm. I, you know, there's most of those guys that made their mark, and the, and the, well, for Stevie, it was the 60s and the 70s, but most of those guys that made their mark across the 70s, guys and, and girls, I should say, um, woman artist Joni Mitchell's a great example of this in particular, really kind of seemed to lose their way in the 80s. They just didn't, you know, I guess they just didn't, it didn't make sense to them and they were probably trying to be hip. They were trying to have competing pop singles and they were um, lured in by the sort of promise of the production of the day and they ended up making vacuous, um, turgid, floppy, silly music that just uh, is a disgrace when compared with um, the stuff that they did the, the decade previous. And, Joni Mitchell and Stevie Wonder are qu quite uh, interesting to kind of look at together because it's hard to pick who had a better seventies out of those two, but but they they dominated. They, they they released you know half a dozen albums each that any person should be you know any person making music should be begged to try and get close to even just one of those ideas, uh, let alone the dozens that are contained within within any of those records. And then they released a small handful of records in the eighties that that are disastrous, um, ugly, horrible, not really representative of, of, of them. And then in the later bit of the 90s, they kind of redeemed themselves. Um, and, yeah, I guess Stevie Wonder now is really touring, I mean, and doing a kind of version of a nostalgia thing where he's going out and touring and playing the hits and giving people what they want. But I, I saw him in, I think it was 2008, uh, in Christchurch, and... I'm so glad I got to see him, and it wasn't just, you know, you go to see a person play the hits and it's the nostalgia thing. It was all of that, but he was most certainly a guy who could still play, could still sing, could still run a really tight, shit-hot band. It wasn't it wasn't in any sense of the word phoning it in or just turning up for a paycheck. There was something incredibly vital about the performance. I don't know that he'll have terribly much in the way of new music to come that means anything. I mean, his... His last record that he put out in the in the early 2000s wasn't particularly great. It was an improvement from the lows of his career, but it wasn't anything, you know, that you're begging to hear when he does these concerts. You want to hear the stuff from the from the 70s. So there were half a dozen albums by Stevie Wonder in the 70s that I could have picked a song from, and I could have picked any song from Songs in the Key of Life, um, which is what I wish comes from. It's it's a record that means a hell of a lot to me because it, it's kind of one of two or three records that I feel line up um, with sort of my birth and my my early childhood. That in that this record was released the same year I was born, and so um, my parents had the record and used to play it when I was a kid. And there's a story that they tell whether true or not. Maybe it's something that they've just kind of. Um, uh, cobbled together as the years have gone on and imagined slightly differently, but they they reckon that the um, the baby crying noise and the start of Isn't She Lovely, which is Stevie Wonder's daughter, who's now one of his backing vocalists, um, she, uh, when she was a baby crying, and that's the start of his, his song to her, Isn't She Lovely, my parents say that they were put on the baby crying on the record, and that would kind of soothe me when I was a kid. But um, I certainly 
can't remember a time in my life that this record wasn't a sort of feature. I grew, I grew up with it. I kind of I've inherited um, the copy that my parents had that still got the songbook that came with it and the little bonus EP, and it was this huge, glorious gatefold double record and it's something that I still you know I take it around town with me when I play records out and I play it regularly at home and I'm sort of never without it for too long and um, you know yeah a lot of people dig the records that came before it I mean he released four incredible albums and and not even as many years and I think what I like particularly about Songs of the Care Life outside of all of what I've said about growing up with it is it really is the final record from him that truly means something. I mean, I also grew up with um, um, Hotter Than July from 1980, which I think is a pretty good a pretty good record too. You know, it's not as good as all of those wonderful things he did beforehand, but it's still pretty good. And maybe that is actually the last great Stevie Wonder record, but, but the last sort of must-hear, must-have Stevie Wonder record is, is Songs in the Key of Life. And, and I wish is a song that's just so instantly uplifting and funky and <laughs> there's a couple of songs on the record like this um it's such a joyful kind of you know an affirmation of life such a positive just musically the feel of it it just you can't how again you can launch it's like that um ain't too proud to dig and and the big chill you can launch into your you know geeky it doesn't matter white guy dance to this song although I will say um, you have lived until you've heard Celine Dion cover "I Wish." That was a, a particular low in my in my kind of career as a music reviewer, having to watch Celine Dion cover "I Wish." Um, you know, there's just something completely wrong about her in a sold-out Vegas show singing a song that begins looking back on when I was a little nappy-headed boy, and singing it with no no irony, no awareness, just just belting it out like it's some great show tune that Celine Dion is going to fix. I think um, Stevie Wonder songs, you know, they they deserve to always be and stay Stevie Wonder songs. I don't know that anyone really needs to cover them because, um, you know, there have been some okay cover versions, but he's the guy that knocks them out of the park. This is Stevie Wonder, I Wish. we 
Simon, you spoke so eloquently just before the song about Stevie Wonder's uh, uh, Songs in the Key of Life, the vinyl record opening it up. Yeah. Uh, the Rip It Up office is just above Real Groovy Records, and through our windows, we can look right down into the vinyl section of the store, which has grown amazingly over the last yeah. couple of years as people have rediscovered vinyl. And there is, yeah. there is something romantic about these big vinyl LP uh, sleeves, the, the, big, the big cover picture, the, the, the way they open up and your, your liner notes. There, there's something yeah. about that that the CD just does not have. I think so, and I think you know, like for me, that was that's always been the case. I, you know, I grew up with records. I guess I abandoned them for a tape collection, for portability, and then a CD collection. But there was always this kind of nag that the record was how music was supposed to be, and how I learnt about music, and so that's what that's what kind of sent me back to it. And um, I always held on, you know, held on to what was left of my parents' record collection. They just they just got rid of things in favour of the CD and they were lured in by the promise of superior sound and, and that you didn't have to get up and flip over the record and, and that you could play it in your car and all of these things that were supposed to matter that, that don't matter at all. Um, and so they, they just got rid of their records. So I, I kept a small handful, some of the really important, records in my childhood I'm happy to still have um, their copies of others I've gone out and found you know a version of it because I remember the cover from when I was a kid uh, you know I, I had a massive CD collection and I still get C- sent CDs to review uh, occasionally if I'm not on the on the record company blacklist um, which seems to be more and more the case and uh, and also nowadays most review stuff tends to come in the way of a stream or a download link and stuff which is which is fine but there's just nothing exciting about receiving a CD beyond the fact that the music on it might be very good. There's always something exciting to me about holding a record, about um, checking it out, and particularly with secondhand records, seeing some of the story inside the record sleeve and the way that the record has already lived, and that you've you've picked it up and decided that you know one one person's you know, shit is another man's sugar, that you, you want to treasure this thing um, that someone's had their time with. I love looking through my records and finding, um, you know, finding the covers have got little scrawled messages on them um, from, from someone else. Uh, and, you know, I like, I like that's all, to me, that's all part of the story and the, and the idea that you, you have to treat these things kind of carefully, that they will walk, that they will run out, that they have, in a playing sense, they have a shelf life if you're not careful with them. Um, that nothing lasts forever. Um, and I also, you know, I never really understood how we got to that point where it's such a giant inconvenience in our life to get up and turn over a record, like, after 20 minutes. To me, that's not, you know, that's not a chore at all. It's, I like that kind of, um, I almost consider it a, a sort of a, a type of interactivity going on where you actually get to get out of your chair um, and go over, and, or go back into the room where the record is playing. If you're sitting in another room, or, or um, and just and just kind of touch the record, turn it over, have this connection with the stereo. I remember being a little kid and just being fascinated by watching the record turn, just seeing it spin. And I'm still kind of caught in that. Some days, some days I'll just stare at the record for a few minutes, and I probably, you know, maybe. Um, Maybe he's doomed and and it's a form of child abuse, but I can see that in my son watching records. And maybe, you know, I don't really feel beyond the fact that I play records at home and he gets to see it. I don't really feel that I'm forcing it on him at all. He has he already at three has his own music collection. He has CDs that are practical for him and in his bedroom and he goes off and listens to his own music that he chooses. But 
he loves seeing a record turnaround. He loves he's he's caught up in it, and I can sort of imagine him wondering how does this work. And some days I still feel like that, and some days I'm certainly transported back to when I was his age or a little bit older. I can I can remember my parents teaching me to to flip over records by about the age of four, so that they maybe they were training themselves for the CD age. It was so they didn't have to get up. But um, <laughs> you know I can remember being a four year old kid flipping over records and 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 pouring over the cover, looking at the liner notes and. You know, I couldn't even read properly at the time, but I was interested in all of these squiggles that were on the page. And then as I got older, you just I read every lyric and wanted to read about every musician that was on each track, and which is how you find out things like the fact that Steely Dan has damn near a different band for every song that they, they put on a record and so forth. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm very much caught up in that romantic stuff, which probably just sounds like I'm a horrid, moisty-palmed mouth breather, you know, like... Um, <laughs> And and certainly there is that anorak kind of thing about it that probably scares people off. But I always say there are worse things you could do with your time. You know, you could you know not you're not hurting anyone um, being a bit of a record bore. You're just possibly you know endangering the conversation. But apart from that, you're not really hurting anyone or anything. And um, it's to me it's it's a nice little pleasure to have in life. A nice little I, I get no I get no joy out of. Cl- clicking on a file apart from if the music is fantastic when I hear it momentarily but I get no joy out of clicking on a file there's no sense of curation about deciding to play an mp3 or scrolling somewhere on your iPod but there is a sense of kind of curation about looking thumbing through the records and deciding what's going to be the one that's going to set the room alight you know and 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 I don't mean when you're DJing at a bar although it can mean that I mean it could just be you and your lounge at home and what's going to make the room feel fantastic. And there is something about a really great record with a really great story and obviously fantastic music actually making the room kind of feel warmer and, um, and a little bit less lonely or something like that. We're turning our attention now to the Rolling Stones. Your next song choice is the Rolling Stones. The track is Sway. I will, yeah. I will chip in here straight away and say, Unequivocally, I have never, ever gotten the Rolling Stones at all, except for one album, and that was yeah. Some Girls, which I love to death. But every, yes, every, if, everything yeah. else makes no sense to me. Wow. See, uh, some girl, I, nearly picked, um, I nearly picked something from Some Girls. I, I, I'm really uh, I'm a huge fan of that record, and, and I love the title track. I think the sort of swagger of the title track from Some Girls is, is amazing, and I think it's one of... Mick Jagger's sort of best sneering, you know, smug, um, almost meta performances, um, uh, lyrically and vocally. Um, but I didn't. I picked Sway, and I picked, I picked Sway from from Sticky Fingers because Sticky Fingers is another favourite Stones record. Also, uh, my slightly sinister reason for choosing this is, I mean. I'm a I'm a Keith Richards fan, as I'm sure any Rolling Stones fan is. But in the last few years, it's just been a bit ridiculous how excited people get by the idea of Keith as this silly old drunk rock and roll pirate who runs, you know, as the boss when the Stones are on stage and is the only thing that you should care about. So I picked Sway because it's a Rolling Stones track, but Keith is not on. I mean, you can hear his voice. There are some backing vocals there, but... He's not he's not playing the guitar, and I mean I love his guitar playing. He's a great rhythm guitar player. He's a great songwriter, and a great songwriting guitarist. But to me, the absolute peak of the Stones, um, in terms of constant excitement, 
uh, were those records that they made in the late 60s and, and, and early 70s when Mick Taylor was a member of the group. And he was he was the least Rolling Stone type of Rolling Stone. You know, he didn't fit. He was the piece of the puzzle that stuck out. Like, he, he was clean cut and quiet and he wasn't, and he was young, you know, he wasn't, he was he was a gifted musician, but he just wasn't sort of right for the lineup. And yet they made their best music, and the music that still dominates their sets, and you know, is is not just my favourite music by the band. I would say you know uh, most uh, Rolling Stones fans have a soft spot for so much of that music from '68 to sort of '72, and even on to '73, '74. Um, so yeah, I, lo- I love Sticky Fingers too be- as a record because. Uh, Everyone always raves about Exile on Main Street, and I don't quite understand the love for that record. I think that it's a messy... Yeah, it's got some great tracks, but it's a messy record, and it's sort of put together as a couple of... almost a couple of different solo albums, sort of half a Mick Jagger record and half a Keith Richards record, and it's a big sort of glut of tunes, whereas Sticky Fingers, I think, is a, is a pretty immaculate collection of songs um, it moves around a lot there's a lot of different things happening on the record but it, within a tight time frame and Sway is one of those songs that you know it wasn't a big single for the band it doesn't get played live a lot it's, it's very much in, in, in the context of the Rolling Stones career it's very much an album track and it's one of those kind of within that I guess it's one of those hidden gems but but to counter what you were saying and what I agreed with about about songs this is one that a favourite song, but from the first moment I heard it, I went, wow, that's just a force of nature. That's an extraordinary song. There's something about um, the way the Stones play on this track. Mick, Mick Taylor's playing is, is fantastic. Mick Jagger's singing is fantastic. Um, there's just something about the band as a force that, that, that um, you know, at their best, they were always, and still, about, you know, these these kind of... <laughs> Almost, I don't want to say average players, but they're not the greatest musicians in the world. But there's something about the selection of them all coming together, playing for a tune. Where on the on the right moment, they are the best band in the world. And I come and go with the Stones these days, but they're one of the bands from my childhood that I spent a lot of time listening to. And uh, their best stuff still really kind of moves me and excites me. And Sway is, is for me one of their absolute best songs. The Rolling Stones, Sway. Straight into our next track, Simon. This is Bob James, Angela. Yeah, yeah. This is best best known, uh, really. I guess is the theme from Taxi, and um, I, I don't know what it is about this, but I mean, I love the show. I love the show Taxi. Uh, it's a show from my childhood, and uh, I always remember um, 
thinking it was a funny show. Probably it was one of those things where I thought it was a funny TV show, even when I didn't really quite understand it. You know, I, I was young and I probably got some of the jokes and I probably laughed at the more obvious things like, um, you know, the foreign man accent that our Andy Kaufman's character was doing. And, and just, just the sound of his voice was funny, rather than some of the really quite bittersweet notes that you can see in the in the program when you watch it now. Some amazing characters in it, and obviously it was uh, career-starting for so many um, people. But one of the big selling points of Taxi for me always was this music. And for a long time I didn't know it. I just knew, you know, I knew it when I heard it. It was just a theme song to a TV show. So... I think what really got got me hooked on the on the song and wanting to know about the song was seeing that movie um, about Andy Kaufman where Jim Carrey plays him, Man on the Moon. Oh, I, I love I love that film. Yeah, it was a great it was a great film. Okay, you know, no one's ever going to really know the true Andy Kaufman story. This is this is sort of a version of the Andy Kaufman story. But but as a movie in and of itself, it was a fantastic performance by Jim Carrey and a, and a really neat movie and it, and it sort of shone the light on. A, you know, a guy who at that time had been, you know, forgotten about apart from in tight comedy circles. You know, like Kaufman is a comedy icon, uh, a fearsome sort of talent, you know, one of the world's first trolls, really, too, in a pre-internet world. Um, but, yeah, there's a snippet in that film where um, they play, you know, they recreate Taxi, and so they play um, just a tiny piece of the music and I remember vividly, every time I hear this piece of music now, I can remember being in the, and I've watched um, Man on the Moon a bunch of times, and I've seen it on video and DVD since, but um, I can remember being in the cinema and just being hit by that music, just going, wow. You know, just that whole kind of almost mawkish kind of sentimentality where totally hit with a, with a rush of childhood nostalgia. Just everything came back to me. Friday nights, having fish and chips, watching Taxi, uh, dad home from work at the end of working, you know, uh, a long week and catching up with him and, and and all of that kind of childhood nostalgia seemed to be encapsulated in just this 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 one simple kind of lovely piece of music with with a deceptive groove going on underneath it. So I got I got kind of hooked on it and then and then I found out it was Bob James and I realised that I knew a bit of his music. I mean I was never um, a massive Bob James fan, but I knew who he was and I knew what he did and he, he was sort of known. For, for, for a lot of kind of soft jazz and, and, and uh, you know, almost getting towards funk, a sort of fusion element in his playing. But a lot of his stuff was was used and rediscovered and, and, and kind of redefined by um, hip-hop artists making um, great uh, breakbeats and, and, and using really clever samples from his music and showed just how, how funky some of his stuff was. So I got kind of interested in Bob James for a bit, but... Angela, the thing from Taxi, is still is still a song, a piece of music that speaks kind of the loudest to me. Um, I can kind of follow it in my head. It, you know, it's it's a very simple sort of melody, and there's just something very stately about it. And um, I'm so obsessed with it that I did a car trip um, a couple of Christmases ago and decided I was going to listen to it on on a loop for the entire trip, like a three and a half hour car trip. And I was just going to play this one five or six, <laughs> You're five or six Yeah, no, 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 no joke. And and we we ended up. <laughs> I'm such a a sicko that there were other people in the car. You know, this would be a fine thing to do if you were on your own. But there were other people in the car when I did it. And um, and uh, we we made it about two hours listening to it. And after about two hours, I think you know my son was a, a baby at the time, and he woke up and 
that we pulled the car over and there was a bit of a sort of change of scene and a change of mood so that that meant new music and then no music for a while and all of that but I would do it again. I would jump in the car tomorrow and drive four or five hours listening to that piece of music over and over again. There's something so it's almost like a little piece of meditation for me. I'm I made up a playlist where I just um it's just that song and I just kinda clipped and dragged it and repeated it a couple of dozen times so that I don't you know, and so that I used to walk around town listening to it. I used to walk home from work and I'd listen to the theme from Taxi five or six times walking home from work. And um I also around this time I found the record and it was a bit of a bit of a dig to try and find the record, but I found the record eventually and um I kind of had this sort of idea that it would be a fun thing to play at the end of a DJ set, you know, like the subtext being, right, it's time to go home, go and call your taxi. And maybe only I would get that joke or someone who, you know, knew the show would would, would sort of work it out. But it's become a kind of feature of playing. And, and the first time I played it, I was kind of nervous that it was going to get laughed at or just ignored. I kind of, you know, idealistically wanted it to mean something. And the coolest thing that happened was a bunch of younger kids came into the bar and, um, you know, I could be wrong here. They might they might have all been taxi fans. They might own the DVDs or whatever. But I was just looking at them. I knew they were too young to know about the show and its original airing. And I kind of feel like they probably didn't know the TV show. But they just, and maybe they were being ironic, but they just decided to have a little kind of, a little slow groove boogie to this piece of music. And it kind of warms my heart thinking about that. I'm... Uh, I get I get almost kind of misty eyed thinking about this music, and probably because it's just so simple. There's just uh, it's just a stately kind of piano and and this wonderful um, piece of drumming from um, Idris Muhammad, who who just passed away recently, and uh, he he was always one of my favourite drummers. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm totally and utterly aware of how bonkers I sound um, gushing over this piece of music. But um, but you know, push comes to shove, it's it's my favourite piece of music that's ever ever been invented. Take it away, Mr. Bob James.
Simon, I'm so thrilled that you picked a TV show theme for your song choices because if I was to... Uh, I, I, I'm of the same mind. If I was to select my top ten songs, there would be something from my childhood from TV. One of yeah. the, I, I was part of that first generation of Kiwi kids who grew up not knowing that... Well, TV appeared in 1962, the year I was born, yeah. and there was always a TV in the house. Yeah. I grew up with TV, and as much as I liked the TV shows, I, I listened to... Mary Tyler Moore show was always a big favourite, and I love the theme from that. I love the theme from Star Trek. I love the theme from Lost in Space and Bewitched, and, and it goes on and on. And I still listen to those themes today, and, and I marvel at their cleverness and how, how compact they are, how, how they can fit so much into such a little space. Yeah, they needed... I'm a big fan of um, film, film score, but um, also TV soundtracks, and they needed to, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Part of what's, um, I guess, kind of intoxicating about the very best TV um, scores is that they needed to say a lot um, in, in, in a very little space, which is kind of exactly the opposite of what I'm doing rambling right now. But they needed to be succinct and to kind of present a kind of version of the emotional journey you were meant to go on in in the context of the show. So... You know, they would be light and whimsical, and there would be hints of darkness if that's what you were supposed to expect. And it would all all kind of turn on a dime. And um, you could they could cut the best uh, TV composers and and the best film composers. You know, can do that. They can channel so much emotional intensity into just into just a few notes, and that's it's it's always a pretty powerful thing to experience. So much so, yeah, so much so that you know you. You, sometimes you can actually dig a piece of music from a film or a TV without even ever seeing the show. Our next track is from Talking Heads. The song is The Great Curve. I remember, I forget, I forget the producer's name, but the first time they went into the studio with a big recording contract to record an album, uh, I, I remember reading an interview with the producer of that first album, and he said, these kids came in and they didn't even know how to tune their instruments. Yeah, that I I I um I love Talking Heads and I love that they you know they only existed for a decade pretty much exactly a decade and and you know straddling the seventies and the eighties and they they were essentially two different kinds of band or two two bands happened within that there was you know the first band the band that you're talking about these young kids that allegedly didn't know how to play. Um, that were very much part of the punk movement, but weren't really ever quite part of the punk scene. You know, I don't know that they ever consciously tried to be punk, and there was always something a little bit arty and playful and pop single-ish about what they were doing, even when they were sort of playing at CBGBs and hanging out with television and the Ramones and or, or and Blondie, or at least being lumped in with those bands. Uh, and then, of course... Um, they became the big kind of... They, there was still this artiness about them and, and the music videos and obviously the, the classic concert film, but they became this big kind of pop band, pop single band. And um, again, I'm I'm of the age where I don't have any of the baggage around that, so I don't need to be like the cool guy who just liked the early talking heads. I actually grew up with the, the post-burning-down-the-house talking heads. So, you know, I have... I have no issue with songs like 
road to nowhere, apart from the fact that it's kind of been a bit played out. It's not it's not at all my favourite um, Talking Heads song to hear, or and she was. But but you know, it's not it's not the fault of the song <laughs> that they've been played too many times. That's our fault. Uh, it's not actually the song's fault. Um, so I like I like elements of those things, um, and I love the last Talking Heads album, which which never really gets talked about enough. Um, an album called Naked, and maybe it probably makes more sense if you think of it as the first David Byrne solo album. Um, but it's a fantastic record. But but there's no denying that right in the middle was this white hot streak. And so Remain in Light, um, if if I have to pick one. Is, is my favourite Talking Heads album. It is it is the one that, you know, it lights up from the word go and it just doesn't stop. And, and it's got the big pop single on it too because it's got Once in a Lifetime, which is a pretty terrific song. But um, I, I love this song that I picked, The Great Curve, because um, it shows how um, good they were at, at folding in this sort of, Afrobeat influence without ever, and you know, obviously this is the work of this is the work of Brian Eno, um, as well as David Byrne, as well as the members of the band, and then of course you've got some pretty pretty incredible session players uh, helping out um, on this track and on this album to 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 help kind of fully coax the sound. But the Great Curve to me is is one of those songs where it's like the way it just powers straight in and the way it goes out after six or seven minutes. You almost—it's like a short, an open-ended short story. You, you feel like you're just sort of peeking in on something that was already happening, and is going to go on after you listen. That the, the the six or seven minutes that they put down in the studio is actually just the bit that you're hearing. You kind of feel like this song could go on for an hour, and that it would be just as fantastic to hear it played for an hour. You just happen to get the bit in the middle that they put down on tape that day. And um, yeah, I kind of I kind of think that talking his career was was pretty much perfect. There's not really a dud album in their in their catalogue. Um I, I understand that the people that grew up with those first three or four records that really were quite special and that there maybe wasn't much like it, um, could have I can see how they could have felt let down by a band suddenly touring stadiums and, and, and having big hit singles on the radio. But then, you know, all of those records that came in the eighties, to me, they've got some really strange, quirky uh, dare I say, arty moments happening on them as well as the big pop singles, and sometimes within the big pop singles. So they're they're a band I could never ever get sick of. But the Great Curve is is a truly killer track. Talking Heads, the Great Curve.
your second to last song choice, Simon, is a Kiwi song. But before we introduce the artist and the song, I want to ask you about, well, who are your, your favourite little handful of Kiwi artists? Well, there's, yeah, there's too many to name. I mean, I'm, a, I'm uh, you know, uh, one, of, one of my earliest kind of memories of, of hocking into music was this, for me, this kind of golden patch of um, great Kiwi, uh, Kiwi artists around the late 70s and early 80s. I guess things my, things my parents were listening to, I suppose. Um, split ends, obviously. Um, Dave Dobbin and both BD uh, Smash and the Dudes, and then and then as Dave Dobbin as well. Um, you know the Crocodiles uh, and the Darts Exponents and Dragon and Hello Sailor and 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 then you know as I got older, I sort of found out about some of the I guess quirkier things that were happening at the same time. The the Flying Nun stuff, Pop Mechanics, things like that as well. Um, uh, you know, I kind of feel like there's a lot of great stuff happening in New Zealand music again at the moment. There's uh, certainly bands that uh, and artists like Lawrence Arabia and Phoenix Foundation are building, you know, careers that are going to, well, you know, they're not going to be as big as, but you're going to look back through those records and it's a bit like me looking through the Talking Heads records and saying there's not a dud there. They've got half a dozen or a dozen albums and there's there's no failure. And I feel like that about Phoenix Foundation, who are sort of half a dozen records into a career, and, and Lawrence Arabia, who's about to release his, his fourth, and then he's got sort of sideline projects and stuff. And there's there's really not a dud record there. These are guys that are making fantastic music, and there's a consistency. They're experimenting and uh, evolving, but there's something pretty magical happening across all of the records. So, yeah, there's, some, there's something pretty, you know, David Kilgore obviously is another uh, important kind of force within New Zealand music with sort of um, almost uh, nonchalant, uh, reluctant guitar hero. There's something pretty special about anything that he touches. Um, the Clean, you know, which again is Kilgore, but The Clean as their own entity is is something that um, they continue to sort of put on pretty amazing shows and the last record they released was as good as anything I remember from their sort of early important years. There's lots of great stuff, you know. There's a lot of New Zealand music that flat out is horrific. There's loads of it, but that's that's the same with 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 any place in the world. We have this problem in New Zealand where, because we, you know, what I was starting to say to you at the start about feedback from people, because you know, because we might know the person, we, we want like their music because we know the person. But then at the other end, once someone gets even remotely successful, we want to kind of pick the hole and and knock them for, uh, you know, for, for some sort of achieving. So I've always kind of felt um, a, a strange kind of um, defence thing kick in for Jordan Lux because I feel like he's a guy who is truly one of New Zealand's greatest songwriters, and yet, and yet a lot of people seem to want to pick holes in the fact that when the dance exponents became the exponents and they wrote a handful of sort of these question mark songs, you know, who loves who the most and why does love do this to me and what happened to Tracy and everything ended with a question mark for a while there. There's nothing hugely wrong with those songs, um, but we seem to kind of like say that here was a guy just writing kind of rugby and drinking anthems and, and here was a guy writing kind of sellout stuff. Well, he, he was just a guy writing songs. It's what we did to them that made them become that. Um, 
but I do think that the earliest work of um, Jordan Luck is particularly special in the, in the uh, special in the the, the first album by the Darts Exponents, one of my all-time favourite records by anyone. Let's have a listen to this. Know your own heart. The Darts Exponents. Final song is uh, you've selected something new. It's from Nina Cherry. It's called Blank Project. Yeah, it's the title title song of her album. I mean, it's a year old now. Um, I was just conscious of uh, when you asked me to pick some songs. I've definitely gone uh, on the nostalgia kind of buzz, which is a lot of what I'm about. And uh, with with regard to my own listening, um, I, I publish a lot of stuff. You know, I'm writing reviews on my off the track site everyday album reviews and, and, and other writing as well. And so uh, recommendations of new stuff for me can kind of come from there, I reckon. But but Blank Project by Nina Cherry is, uh, is pretty special to me. It's a record that I loved it almost as soon as I heard it. And um, one that I couldn't stop playing last year, one that I played more than, you know, I, I think I pretty much said it was my favourite record of last year, of 2014, was certainly the album that I played the most. There might have been one or two other contenders that came close to it. The the Sun Kill Moon record was pretty was pretty fantastic. The War on Drugs record was great, and um, Dan Vice, uh, an amazing jazz drummer, um, released an incredible record. There, were, there was a handful of things, you know, nudging up against this one, but but the Nina Cherry record was the one for me. Um, and you know, I got a kind of uh, a kick out of it because my son Oscar just got hooked on it. When it was, it's the weirdest thing for a three-year-old. I would have thought to get hooked on it, um, but he did. And probably just because I was playing it around the house and he heard bits of it, and um, he he got obsessed with it. So I bought the record and it came with a free CD. And I would hear him playing it in his room. He would go off to his room and say that it was time for him to listen to his music, and you'd you'd hear him playing. CD and I'd go in and hang out with him and we'd talk about it. He he sort of started talking about, as a three-year-old does, about how one day she was going to come to his house and they were going to hang out and play drums together. So when um, when she played in Wellington a couple of weeks ago, I would have never thought to do this, but one of my friends suggested that I contact the promoter and um, and see if I could take Oscar along to the sound check because obviously he couldn't go to the gig. And, and we did that. And, um, and we didn't really expect that much would happen, but we thought we'd ask. And Got a late call saying that we could go down and say hello, and uh, you know, you know that that sort of. I'd, I'd interviewed her in a, in, a, in a formal capacity. I'd done an interview with her, and she'd been great. She's always uh, uh, been an interesting 
musical force in my life. I I kind of have this thing like when I came home from the gig that night, I, I was really quite um, moved by the gig because you know there's only a small handful of things and they're all quite um, might sound quite um, disparate, you know, disconnected from one another and and, and perhaps uh, you know in a taste making sort of sense they don't sound that special, but Guns N' Roses and the Beastie Boys and Nina Cherry are the three acts that I thought of straight away as being things that I discovered on my own outside of my parents' collection, you know, as a, as a, as a young kid still, like a teenager and, and only just a teenager, you know, having just moved on from the Midnight Oil and U2 tapes, um, those were records, those were tapes and records that I heard about through kids my own age, you know, uh, at school, and that I went and discovered for myself and got hooked on. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I don't listen to Guns N' Roses all that much these days, but uh, Nina Cherry and Beastie Boys are... Uh, Obviously, the two that are probably a little bit more connected to one another, and they, well, you can see the comparison, that they still figure pretty heavily in my listening. So it was pretty special to go to the gig. It was pretty special to speak to her um, on, you know, in, a, in an interview sense on the phone. It was pretty special to go to the gig. The record has been really special. But seeing her be prepared to meet perhaps her youngest fan and not be weirded out by it and be so lovely and nice and and obviously just a normal person, um, but just be so kind and courteous and considered uh, was was a pretty special moment. So the record is getting a lot of play still. Like quite often for me, you review the album, you see the artist, and then you kind of shelve the record for a while. But that's not been the case. I'm, I'm sure between me and Oscar, we're driving um, his mum and my wife. We're driving <laughs> we're driving Katie nuts um, by playing it all the time. But um, yeah, this. It's it's a great record, and, and the title track has this kind of urgency about it, but also it links it back to you know the shades of the the early Massive Attack stuff, which which she had a crucial part, and um, she was a kind of producer of Massive Attack or co-arranger producer in, the, in in a financial capacity as well as in a musical capacity. She's she's arguably a big part about what made that first Massive Attack record even happen, and so to hear in the way that she does. You can hear shades of that and of the kind of, I guess, post-punk ideas that she was playing in Rip Rig and Panic. And and then even you can still hear elements of her first couple of solo records in it. There's, you know, she, she's an artist that there's a small amount of material that's got her name on it over sort of 25 years. But, but all of it is golden. All of it's magical. And all of it draws from a variety of sources. None of it's... You know, it doesn't repeat itself. Um, it has this, it's full of fresh ideas, but you can see in any of the things that she's released, you can kind of see and feel and hear this, this uh, amazing lineage. There's so much going on, sort of in her, in her musical scope, in her backstory, in her, um, in her vision. And uh, yeah, the new record's fantastic. So why not play the title track? That's that's a good enough intro to it. Nina Cherry. Blank Project and Simon Sweetman, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, it's been uh, it's been lovely to, to to talk about music, which I think you know is um, what people forget. When I get, I'm happy to get the grief that I get for some of the things that I write and say and do. But you know, people, it's it's nice to try and have a chance to remind people that it all kind of comes from the place of actually caring a lot about music, being a music fan. That's what it's about, and. I just like to vent when I'm let down about things. I like to have a whinge about things that I don't like or that I think have have, have let me down. Um, but I also love to just rave and gush about things that I absolutely love. So thanks for the opportunity.